Let's pray before I read. Father God, we thank you that you've given us your word so that we can know you and learn more about you. We pray as we read that you would speak into our hearts and minds and that you would help Andrew to explain this passage to us clearly in order that we might know you better and become more like you. Amen. Amen. So today's passage is from John 18, it's verses 1 to 14, and for using church Bibles it's on page 1086. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place, because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again he asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you're looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the father has given me? Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him to Annas, who is the father-in-law of Cephas the high priest that year. Cephas was the one who advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Neville. Do keep that uh, passage open. Uh, Good morning. Good to have you with us this morning. Uh, We are in John's Gospel, as you can tell, and uh, we're starting a new series that's going to lead us right up into the heart of of Easter over the coming weeks and to the heart of our faith. Uh, We haven't been in John for a while, so just a a very quick uh, setting of the scene uh, for you and uh, this book. Uh, John's account is really broken, I think, into two halves. So chapters 1 to 11 is uh, dominated by the signs uh, or the miracles that Jesus Uh, performs that reveals something of his glory and identity. Uh, It begins with Jesus turning water into wine. It ends with Jesus calling out Lazarus, uh, that dead man from uh, the tomb. And each of those events, I say, 
proclaim something of the remarkable identity and mission uh, and magnificence, I think, of, of Jesus. But even though these uh, signs are incredible and glorious, uh, they are just the hors d'oeuvres. Indeed, Jesus uh, repeatedly speaks of a coming hour, uh, a moment where those signs will be eclipsed by something even more uh, glorious and revealing. That will take us again to the heart of Jesus' identity and mission. And then in chapter 12, Jesus says, the hour's come. But before the blur of action, Jesus spends, I think, five chapters preparing his disciples for that hour, uh, showing them its meaning and uh, significance. Well, now we reach chapter 18, where the action intensifies and becomes deeply uh, poignant and powerful. But let's pray as we come to explore uh, this passage now. Father, we stand on the threshold of this remarkable passage. Please may we see... Jesus and something of his glory may may he become more than just a simply a, a figure of history but our reality the one that we love and follow and worship amen well John uh, you might notice often records small details uh, uh, that are dripping often with significance and meaning if we dig a little bit below the surface and so look down at verse one so we're told, uh, when Jesus had finished praying, uh, he left with his 11 uh, disciples, remaining disciples, and crossed uh, the, the Kidron Valley to an unnamed garden on the uh, Mount of Olives that other uh, gospel writers identify as the Garden of Gethsemane. Gethsemane. Now, John uh, is the only one who mentions the, the Kidron Valley, the river that separated uh, Jerusalem uh, from uh, the Mount of Olives. But significantly, a thousand years earlier, another king, King David, had crossed that same valley and climbed the same hill. You can read about it in 2 Samuel chapter 15. It was a journey marked by tears and the anguish of betrayal. As one who had shared David's bread, indeed his own son Absalom, commits a shocking act of treachery and betrayal in a grab for the king's throne. And I wonder if this is just way, the way that John prepares us uh, and warns us about what is about to happen. That in this garden setting, far from being a place of rest and peace, as gardens are meant to be, it is about to become a place of chaos and darkness, of unimaginable treachery and evil, as the one known as the son of David is betrayed by his own. Well, if David was taken by surprise... Jesus is certainly not. Indeed, Jesus had repeatedly spoken of this moment and even identified his betrayer back in John chapter 13. And so as Judas sets his trap and seeks to ambush his victim, John wants us to see a deeper uh, reality that is even more shocking, I think, than the betrayal itself. And as we navigate uh, this very chaotic garden scene, uh, I think there are three things I want us to see which will help us uncover the glory of the one who dominates uh, this part of John's gospel, as indeed the whole gospel. Um, I don't want to lower the tone, but uh, I don't know if you saw the rugby uh, this weekend. I'm still licking my wounds from a, a drubbing from the French. 
But one of my favourite moments uh, is the build-up. In fact, it was the only favourite moment yesterday. The build-up to the game as you see the team sort of line up and then belt out their anthems. The moment of truth has arrived, hasn't it? Uh, And as you stare into their faces, you see that jaw set. You see uh, that steely determination in the eyes, the expressions of passionate commitment. We don't know what Jesus looked like, do we? But as I see Jesus in these verses, uh, that's the kind of expression I, I picture him with, that fixed determination of total commitment as the hour of destiny arrives. And here's the shocking thing. What is he determined to do? He is determined to die. So Jesus leads his disciples to the garden, to the place of betrayal. Uh, Jesus knows the place well, uh, and so does Judas, of course. uh, As John notes in verse 2, it was a place where Jesus and the twelve often went. And then verse 3, Judas, having uh, agreed to hand over Jesus to the Jewish religious leaders, guides this detachment of soldiers and officials to get uh, their man. This is the moment that the religious bigwigs have been plotting uh, for so long, almost since the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And in Judas, they found haven't they, the, fir- the perfect accomplice in their plotting, um, an insider, part of the inner sanctum, uh, who can guide them to Jesus, even under the cover of darkness. And the description of the soldiers speaks volumes, doesn't it? Commentators say that the word detachment is a technical term that may suggest as many as a couple of hundred soldiers. And if that seems like overkill, perhaps it was Judas who warned the plotters not to underestimate the power of Jesus. After all, Judas had been there when Jesus had stilled a storm with a word. And with just a word, raised the dead. And they don't just come in numbers. They come, don't they, heavily armed, bringing torches and lanterns, just in case Jesus decides to play hide-and-seek in the darkness. But now look down at verse 4. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out to them. And here's the first clue, isn't it? They're not, uh, that everything that's happening here is not all that it seems. See, just when it appears as though Jesus has fallen into their trap, uh, that they've surprised him, we discover he has been waiting for them all along. It's a bit like dropping around to a friend, thinking you'll surprise them uh, with an unannounced visit. But as you reach the doorbell, the, the door swings open, and your friend says, hi, we've been expecting you. Dinner's on the table, just about to serve up. So here we catch a, a glimpse of a, of a deeper reality, don't we? A, a one in which it's not the soldiers, it's not even Judas who's masterminding the events, calling the shots. No, it's Jesus. He's the one firmly in control. Jesus knowing all things that were going to happen to him. They're words to ponder, aren't they? Of course, Jesus had made it clear on several occasions that he knew he was going to die. He'd spelled out again and again and even shocked his confused disciples with that news. But here, John makes clear that Jesus knew everything that was about to happen. He knew about the the flogging. He knew about the spitting and the the mocking. He, He knew about the thorns being pressed into his skull the nails that would be slammed into his wrists and feet, uh, that dreadful thirst, that suffocating darkness and crushing loneliness of forsakenness. And 
And here's the thing, knowing all those things, all that was going to happen to him, he went out to them. I guess there are situations in life where we don't know what's going to happen, do we? And if we did, we would run for the hills, wouldn't we? Or we would be paralyzed by fear. But Jesus knew it all, and he didn't flinch. He, he didn't run. He was, he was determined, wasn't he? Absolutely committed to the path that would take him to the cross. Well, as Jesus presents himself to the armed mob, we are drawn into probably one of the most bizarre arrest scenes in history. Indeed, I don't think Jesus could have been a more willing victim, short of supplying his own handcuffs. So look down at verse 6. Uh, who do you want? asks Jesus. Uh, Jesus of Nazareth, the mob reply. And Jesus responds, I am he. And did you notice the reaction of the arresting party to Jesus' words? Uh, they draw back, don't they? And they even fall to the ground. Uh, perhaps they were surprised to find them and so, so readily uh, willing to be taken. But again, I wonder whether there's something more here that meets the eye. Jesus just for a moment, reveals something of his, his glory, his majesty. And the arresters are they're flawed, aren't they, as that veil is just temporarily removed as they catch a breathtaking, sort of knee-bending glimpse of divine majesty itself. If you think that's speculative, uh, uh, notice that three times John draws our attention to the words. Jesus says, I am he. And in the Greek, they're just two words. I am. We're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. They ask, Jesus responds, I am. Of course, they are the words that we find on Jesus' lips uh, a number of times through John's gospel, um, the great I am sayings, echoing back to the time when God first revealed himself to Moses at that burning bush as I am. And so in the darkness of uh, the night, as that veil, I think, is just momentarily drawn back, and the reality of Jesus shines in the blackness uh, the entire detachment falls back without knowing why. But John knows why. Well, I wonder whether we see something of, of that glory, even in the darkness here this morning. Of course, throughout John's gospel, Jesus has been revealing, hasn't he, his glory in surprising ways, in unlikely places. A man sitting tired and thirsty by a well, asking a peasant woman uh, for water and yet revealing himself to be the one who gives life-changing, thirst-quenching living water. A man who lies exhausted at the bottom of a boat, but waits to command with divine power the wind and the waves. A man who weeps beside the grave of a dear friend, but as the tomb echoes to his voice, the dead are raised. And soon, a man who hangs gasping on a cross, but in that moment reveals the glory of God like never before. I wonder if we've got eyes to see uh, Jesus, to really see. Well, as the, the mob regather, uh, notice verse 10 that Peter chooses this moment to, to try and defend Jesus, doesn't he? He, he pulls out a sword that's hidden probably uh, beneath his clothing and he lashes out. And just for a moment, it looks like, doesn't it, all hell is about to break loose, but it's over, isn't it, before it even begins with Jesus commanding Peter to put away his sword. Again, we see I mean, Jesus very determined to go uh, with this mob. He won't have Peter or anyone else stop him. He is determined uh, to die. Well, I imagine that the, uh, the fear of that uh, arresting mob, 
uh, is quickly turned to glee, isn't it, as they bind Jesus. And John writes and leads them away. If you've read the book, uh, The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, um, or seen the film, you'll remember uh, that scene where Aslan, the great lion who represents Jesus, deliberately walks into the lair of the white witch to give himself up uh, to her. And C.S. Lewis describes what the two girls, Lucy and Susan, see. Uh, Lucy and Susan held their breath, waiting for Aslan's roar and his spring upon his enemies. But it never came. Four hags, grinning and leering, yet also at first hanging back and half afraid of what he had to do, what they had to do, had approached him. Bind him, I say, repeated the white witch. The hags made a dart at him and shrieked with triumph when they found that he made no resistance at all. The others, evil dwarfs and apes, rushed in to help them. And between them, they rolled the huge lion over on his back and tied all his four paws together, shouting and cheering as if they had done something brave. Though had the lion chosen, one of those paws could have been the death of them all. But he made no noise. Even when his enemies, uh, straining and tugging, pulled the cord so tight that they cut into his flesh, then they began to drag him towards the stone table, the place of execution. Jesus was no victim. He, he could have avoided the cross. He could have brushed aside his enemies with a word. But he was determined to die. And that begs the question, doesn't it, of course, well, Why? Why subject himself to such a dreadful and humiliating execution? Well, secondly, notice Jesus is determined to die, but to die for us. That is, of course, the great testimony, isn't it, of the Bible uh, from cover to cover. Even hundreds of years before Jesus came, the prophet spoke of a king who would come in all of God's authority, but come as the suffering servant uh, to embrace a path that would take him to the cross, a death that would be... Uh, for us. And here I think in three separate ways that for us purpose of Jesus' death is underlined. So look down at verses 8 and 9. Jesus declares that he is the one they've come for and so asks that they let the followers of Jesus go. And did you spot that odd comment that John makes in verse 9? This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. It's a quote from Jesus himself back in John chapter 6 as he spoke about the safety and the security of those who would trust him and follow him. All those that my father has given me, I will protect them. I won't lose any of them. They are safe. And John sees, doesn't he, in this moment, these words of Jesus uh, being partially fulfilled. In effect, Jesus is saying, isn't he, don't take them, take me. I imagine the fact that Jesus says these words implies that the disciples may well have been taken were it not for his intervention. But Jesus, as it were, stands between uh, the mob and his disciples, and he's willing to take uh, what is coming, uh, to take it for them instead of them. He is dying for them. And if we've missed it here, look down at verse 11. As Peter wields his sword, Jesus says, stop, put it away, Peter. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Well, what is the cup that Jesus is speaking of? Well, it's, its name is used throughout the Bible to speak of, of God's justice and in particular his right and settled uh, hostility towards all that is evil and sinful. 
And so for someone to experience the cup, uh, it was something very serious, wasn't it? Uh, it meant experiencing or being under God's judgment. And as the Bible makes very clear, we are the ones who deserve to drink that cup uh, for our rejection of God, for the way that we live in God's world. Uh, not as grateful and loyal subjects, but actually as rebels, defiantly asserting our own autonomy and doing so in the place of God. God is rightly angry with that, isn't he? As we defy him, uh, angry for, about the ways we abuse and use his gifts without uh, keeping the generous, while keeping the generous giver at arm's length. But astonishingly, at the heart of uh, the Bible story, the message of good news is a God who, who planned to step into the world in the person of Jesus to drink that cup for us in our place even to experience the force of God's hostility to sin, but instead of me, and to stand in my place. So do you feel the, the power and the force of, of Jesus' word? Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? He's saying, shall I not go through with this plan to die, to die for you? But John isn't through. He, he wants us to see this mind-blowing truth uh, one more time. He's adamant we don't miss this. Look down at verses 12 and 14. Jesus led uh, from the olive grove to, uh, uh, and taken to meet Annas. Now, Annas has been the high priest for nine years, most powerful religious figure in the land. Uh, normally it would be a job for life, but the Romans have sort of thrown their weight around a little bit and deposed him. Though Annas still managed to get no less than five of his sons to do the top job after him. Well, Caiaphas, Annas' son-in-law, is the big poncho now, and he will make his appearance in just a few verses. But as John makes the family connection, notice what he says in verse 14. It's written almost as an aside. You could easily pass over it, but it would be missing a deeper truth that John wants us to see. Caiaphas, says John, was the one who had advised the Jews that it would be good or expedient if one man died for the people. There's that idea again of Jesus dying for or in the place of people. You can read about it back in John chapter 11. Uh, but the gist of it is that as uh, Caius, Caiaphas feels the threat of Jesus to his own power uh, and influence, he concludes the only solution is to get rid of Jesus. But Caiaphas is pretty clever and he puts his own spin on things. If Jesus isn't stopped. He might destabilize things, rock the status quo, get the Romans mad. That would be bad for everyone. So the only thing to do, he argues, indeed the right thing to do, the moral course of action here, is to kill Jesus. Better he die for the people than all the people die. But what Caiaphas knows is pure spin. Points, says John, uh, to a deeper reality that neither Annas or Caiaphas have grasped. Indeed, as they hatch their evil plan, unwittingly, without realizing, they are serving the very purposes, the one they are hell-bent on destroying, the one who indeed has come to die on behalf of his people. Well, they don't grasp what's going on, but I wonder whether we've grasped that staggering truth this morning. Jesus is determined to die for us. There is one more thing I wanted to see more briefly. Uh, in our passage this morning. See, if Jesus is determined to die and to die for us, uh, these verses underline very clearly that Jesus is determined to die for us, despite us, if I can put it that way. 
Well, as we are confronted with the astonishing resolve of Jesus, his commitment to that path of self-sacrifice, what we will see most clearly next time is the astonishing feebleness and fickleness of those he's determined uh, to die for. Uh, Simon Peter's self-confidence and pride, his claim that if others fail in Jesus' hour of need, he would stand with Jesus, are going to be exposed. And we'll see that next time. But even, I think, in this garden, we we get a little glimpse, don't we, of the feebleness of the disciples. Of course, they're no match, are they, for the opposition with their menace and numbers and weapons. And even uh, Peter's misdirected assault on the high priest's servant to save Jesus. Uh, only manages to lop off his servant's ear. I mean, how pathetic is that? But I think it's not just Jesus' disciples uh, there in the garden that are being exposed and shown up in their true lights. See, this uh, garden scene of betrayal not only implicates those present at it, but I think it points to another garden that drips with betrayal, one in which the whole of humanity is implicated, including us. Perhaps that's why the deeply, deeply thoughtful John doesn't name this garden. He's wanting us to see uh, below the surface to the moment when humanity was implicated in the act of deepest betrayal at the dawn of human history. And it was just that, wasn't it? And not just our first parents making a mistake or getting something a bit wrong. No, they committed in their treacherous act of betrayal that would shake the entire cosmos. Well, betrayal might seem like a strong word, but it fits. Humanity, having been given so much, entrusted with so much, chooses to throw it all back in the face, doesn't it, of the giver. So privileged, uh, so blessed, living in this life-giving, life-enriching relationship with their creator, now making that audacious grab for, for power, for the gifts, but not the giver. And in so doing, turning that garden of, of blessing and rest into one synonymous with rejection and betrayal. And that reality has played out on every human heart ever since. And now, as this garden becomes a setting for something more, so it exposes, I think, the very things that feature in my life, even as one who claims to be a follower of Jesus. Certainly Peter and me, My words of commitment to Jesus often uh, exposed for their hollowness. And I've denied Jesus when I've chosen to act like I don't know him. But there's something too, I think, of of the Judas here in me too, the seeds of betrayal that I see in my own heart. So Jesus was someone who clearly loved to be around, didn't he, Jesus? Uh, Maybe excited by the signs that Jesus did, being caught up in the power and the privilege, being associated with Jesus. Uh, having some sort of love for what Jesus could do, but it was not one matched by love for Jesus himself. Of course, what Jesus, Judas does is shocking, isn't it? John uh, doesn't dwell, does he, on the act of betrayal, the kiss that picks out Jesus. Uh, I guess John's readers would have been familiar with that moment. But as I reflected on it this week, I wonder if the, the mouth that kissed Jesus still had the fragments of bread in it that Jesus had given him that spoke of the broken body um, of Jesus given for him I wonder if Jesus' breath was still heavy with the aroma of the wine that Jesus had shared with him that symbolised the blood that soon would be flowing for sinners 
the deniers and betrayers. Well, there's something definitely in the Judas in me, those uh, same seeds of betrayal lurking in my heart. Indeed, there are times when I have tasted that bread and wine. Uh, I've fed on that same sacrifice by faith, only within moments, perhaps, to be revealing the fact that I love my own reputation, I love my rights, I love my way uh, more than I love Jesus. But here this week is where the glory of Jesus has shone most brightly for me, glory seen in that expression of determination to die for others and even to die for me. Eyes that see right through me, like they saw through Peter and through Judas, and your eyes not just full of steely determination, but of unflinching and undeserved mercy and love. Jesus was determined to die for me. Determined to die for me, despite me. And when I know that, I think we realize, don't we, there's nothing more wonderful, there's nothing more glorious in all the world. Let me pray as we finish. Paul writes in Romans, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Father, we are in awe of seeing something of the glory of Jesus in this passage. Knowing all that was going to happen to him. Yet he went determinedly to the cross for us, for me. Not because we were brilliant, but despite who we are. Father, I pray that even this week, as we reflect perhaps on this dark moment, we would see something of the glory of Jesus, be drawn to him, and indeed find our hearts overflowing with love for him. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.